Before we dive into our message this morning, I, I do want to mention, hey, I'm sure you all have noticed that the county mask mandate has been lifted, so uh, we will not be enforcing anything like that here with that out of the way. Um, but I would encourage all of you to keep in mind to respect people, respect others, honor others, prefer others. One of the basic tenets of Christianity and things we were taught repeatedly in the scripture is in humility to count others better than yourself. And so whatever a person's situation they're in, we don't know. Just honor them, be respectful, um, and mind what you say. And be, you know, scripture's full of teaching about how to navigate those things. So I would encourage you to continue to, to be gracious and consider the faith aspect of all this as we go through it. Hopefully we don't have to go through that again, I hope. So, um, there you go. Shall we move on? Yeah. I, think, I think it's time. We <clears throat> started talking last week. I started sharing with you about the Apostle Peter. And, you know, one of the 12 that was with Jesus. And um, the reason I wanted to start talking about Peter, I'm not sure I made this real clear last week. Maybe I did. But, you know, Josh was here the week before. Our friend Josh Yakos from Missoula, from Revive Church there. And he was preaching. And he was talking about the church. How much he loves the church. How important the church is to God's plan. The church is God's plan A for the world. There is no other group. There is no other organization. There's no other plan. The church is God's plan. And the church is God's people. It's not the building necessarily. It's not some of the structure and things like that that come with it. The church is you. You and I are God's plan for the world to bring his message, to bring his hope, to bring his love to the world around us. It's it's what we are sent to do. It's what we will look at even after our lives are over. We'll look back and the, the primary thing in which we will reflect on is how we were a part of his kingdom while we were here. It's our priority. And we are the church. And it's funny that 2,000 years ago, Jesus got this process started when he gave his life on the cross. And he, and he told uh, his disciples, uh, particularly Peter, said, I will build my church. In other words, I will build my congregation. I will build my people so much so that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Even death will not win against the church. And here we are, a part of that same thing all these many years later. It wasn't just a fairy tale story or a momentary current event. It was something that changed the course of human history. It changed creation. It changed man's relationship with God when the church was born, when Jesus laid down his life and his people became his people. And that's you and I today. It's something we need to sometimes remind ourselves that, that we, to, to love the church, to honor God's design, to honor what he wants to do with us. And you know what? God builds the church. He extends his kingdom. He's bringing his gospel to the world through average people every day like you and I. I think if you wanted to start a movement, you'd probably go find the most popular or the most talented or the most gifted or the noisiest or arneriest or whatever so that you could get the project taken care of and done. But Jesus didn't work that way. He works in so many ways in the opposite of how we might do things. He reached out to uneducated, average guys in his day. And he transformed their lives. 
And it was quite a process. And Peter is one of those. And, and so I'm, I'm drawing attention to Peter because in so many ways, Peter is me. Peter is Luke. Peter is Robert. Peter is Tyler. He's, he's any one of us. He represents mankind so well and man's tendencies and man's urges. And there's always this almost like a dichotomy or an equal or opposing things going on between Peter and Jesus. Peter comes at it in one angle from a human angle. And Jesus is coming back at Peter with a supernatural spiritual faith-based angle. And so when we look at these stories about Peter, who we see more about him than any of the other apostles in the New Testament, we learn a lot about what we might do or our tendencies or how we might behave. And then we see how Jesus responds so that we can understand what lesson can we learn from from Peter. We are wise if we look at the lives of others and learn lessons before having to go through them ourselves, aren't we? That's why we have a saying like, I, I only learn the hard way. It means I have to go through something myself before I really get it. But it would be truly wise to examine the life of someone else and learn your lesson beforehand. That's why my younger kids hopefully are watching my older kids and learning some lessons, I'm hoping. I don't know if it, it doesn't always work that way, does it? We do have to learn the hard way sometimes. And Peter was one of those people just like us. And you know what? God is building his kingdom with people just like you. You don't have to be Peter who was an apostle of Jesus 2,000 years ago. You have to be you who God made you to be today. You are called today to be an important and valuable, intricate part of this church that God is building on the earth. It isn't just something you attend or just something you look at or or go to for a need. It's something you are a part of, the body of Christ. And you have a part to play. And it's always important for us to be reminding ourselves of, of those things to encourage us and strengthen us and help us get to where we need to go in life. And we learn so much from Peter. If you follow along in your Bible, I'll mostly be in uh, Matthew chapter 26 today. I want to look at um, Jesus' last night before he was crucified and his disciples' last night with him. Um, Because Peter had so much to do in these moments. There was a lot of uh, things that went on. And I'll bounce around some other passages. But Matthew chapter 26 will be... Uh, what we frame most of today around looking at Peter's life. We talked last week, we talked about Peter's calling. He was a fisherman, and we look at that situation, we see some of the stories throughout. But now we're getting to the end of Jesus' life. The end of his ministry on earth. He's about to be crucified. It's the last a day and a half or so of his life. We have what we call the Last Supper, or where we see the concept of communion being instituted by Jesus. There's a lot of conversation that goes on between he and his disciples. Not only is this in Matthew chapter 26, but it's also recorded in the other Gospels in different ways as well, different angles on what was going on in that 24-hour period. So I want to begin, uh, before I get into Matthew, I just want to... um, talk about that last supper a little bit and John records a lot of detail I think I think it might be even as early as John chapter 12 where he starts reco- starts talking about that night and then he goes into chapter after chapter after chapter of teaching and and uh, it's really interesting but in John chapter 13 uh, it, it picks up the story 
uh, in verse 3 with this. John knew, I'm sorry, Jesus knew that the Father had delivered all things into his hands. And that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. Jesus knew what was about to happen. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer garments, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and dry them with a towel that was around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? We don't wash feet in modern times. Uh, But washing the feet of someone would have been the job of a servant. Would have been a dirty job. And something you do to honor somebody else. So Jesus begins to wash their feet. And Peter, of course, taking on uh, some concept in his mind. He's thinking of humility. Like, you shouldn't be washing my feet, Lord. Just like when he was called to be an apostle in, in the boat. And he had have this huge catch of fish. And Peter falls at Jesus' feet and says, go away from me. I am a sinful man. I'm not worthy of you, Lord. Perhaps you and I could relate if Jesus were here today and he wanted to wash your feet. Of course, we would have this story and we would know there's a deeper meaning here, but it would be very, very difficult for someone that you honor and respect so much to actually wash your feet, to submit themselves to you as your servant, even though they're clearly your superior. And Peter's wrestling with this as Jesus comes to him and he says, will you really wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Never shall you wash my feet, Peter told him. I don't know why Peter always felt like he could boss God around, but I think sometimes we do that, don't we? No, God, you would never do that. Or God, you need to do this, or it needs to be like this, or it has to look, what are you... Yeah, God doesn't ask our opinions. I gave you homework last week. Do you know what makes God laugh? Do you remember? Maybe I didn't do it. I can't remember. I think I only did it in one of the services. That's your homework assignment again this week. What makes God laugh? I want to look it up. Does God actually laugh? I think sometimes when when humans get bossy, this is not in the scripture, but, you know, we, we have a joke that, you know, we see, we hear once in a while in the Christian world about how do you make God laugh? Tell him your plan. That's not the scriptural answer. There is a biblical answer. You should look it up. I'm not going to tell you. You search it out. Google works really good. What makes God laugh? Well, Peter says, never. You're not going to wash my feet. You can imagine what he was thinking. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but this is a pattern for Peter. No, Lord, it shouldn't be this way. You don't serve me. I serve you. But then Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not only my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Total flip-flop. Goes the other direction. Well, if you're going to wash my feet, you might as well wash my, give me a bath, you know. Jesus told him, whoever is already bathed needs only to wash his feet and he will be completely clean. So why am I, why am I starting out with this story? I want you to picture yourself there in that last period of time. All of this sequence of events were looking through Peter's eyes. My master has just washed my feet. And it told me that I have, he has to. And that someday I will understand what he has done. 
Picking up the story in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. And when they had sung a hymn, this is at the end of the supper time, and Jesus has washed their feet. They've had this conversation. And Judas has gone out to betray Jesus that night. All this is happening. And when they had sung a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter, speaking up first as usual, answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus said, would you really? Before the rooster crows this morning, you will deny me three times. That had to be kind of painful to hear. I think we do the same kind of things at times. We, we rally ourselves and I, I won't deny and I won't be weak and I won't make a mistake. Master's just washed my feet. He says he's going to die and raise again, but that doesn't really make sense to us. These guys were very much looking for a king to take the throne of David on the earth. Because of Jesus' popularity, I mean, think about how crazy popular Jesus was. All the healings and the power that he had. He was overthrowing their political system just by his basic actions of healing people. The Pharisees were in an uproar. They wanted to kill him. The Romans didn't know what to do with him yet. And they're anticipating that the kingdom will be an earthly kingdom. These guys have seen this before. Israel had been under the oppression of Rome and other empires in years gone by, and there had been men that had been raised up among them to lead them in rebellion. And they'd been overthrown a number of times. They were very zealous for their nation. And God kept them under the oppression of these other empires. So these guys were familiar with this. They wanted to cast off Rome. They wanted the the freedom and so that's what they were expecting and often hoping. They, they said things like, they, they just didn't see clearly that Jesus was doing something way above and beyond what they could have anticipated. He was changing the agreement between God and man, the covenant. He was about to do something that would cover sin for eternity. He was about to become not just an earthly king, but the king of all kings for all time. And they didn't quite realize that. They, they had said things in the past. John and James, who were also the two brothers that had been called with Peter and Andrew, they left a Samaritan town one time, and the Samaritan town had rejected Jesus, and they said, let's call down fire on these guys. Sounds real Jesus-like, huh? Call down fire, burn up the village, kill all the people that don't listen? What did Jesus do? He rebuked them. He got after them. They were in trouble for that kind of comment. Because Jesus was doing something different. Before the night is over, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What's going on in Peter's heart here? I'm not sure. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying. He asks them to stay awake. They keep falling asleep. He gets after Peter. Could not keep watch with me, even for one hour. <laughs> but they were tired. 
It's where we get the phrase, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is from this story in the garden. We see very much here the suffering beginning for Jesus, that he could identify with the weakness of mankind. We often look at Jesus' story and go, yeah, but he was God in the flesh, of course. And yet God chose to submit himself to human suffering so that he could identify with our weaknesses. And in the book of Hebrews, it teaches us that he became a high priest, but not like one who's aloof, that can't understand, but one that can sympathize with you and I and our suffering. That's how much God loves you. He submitted himself to a human life in order to identify with your weaknesses. How compassionate was that? He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And they were there and they witnessed these things. But then the time comes for him to be betrayed and Judas comes to the garden, he's got a mob of people with him. Verse 50. Friend, Jesus replied, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. At this point, one of Jesus' companions drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. This is John's account. No, no, I'm sorry. This is not. We're still in Matthew. Cutting off his ear, John later identifies him as Peter. So even though Matthew doesn't tell us who of the disciples drew the sword and chopped off the ear of the high servant, but John later identifies him as Peter. In John chapter 18, he also identifies the man whose ear was cut off as Malchus. Now, why was this important? One of the most powerful things about the story of Jesus and why the church exploded in the first century is that there were 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. These stories weren't just something coming out of a fairy tale land. They were drawn back to real people, real events. You'll see sometimes they'll list who was the reigning governor at such and such a time. All of that draws off off the historical validity of the story. And it was so powerful because it could be validated by how many people had witnessed the resurrected Christ. And when we see little things like this about John saying, hey, it was Peter that drew the sword and chopped off the ear, and the guy who lost his ear was Malchus. And sometimes we read those things and go, why, why did, would, that, would that have mattered? It really would have mattered then because Malchus was a real guy that they knew. <laughs> Particularly the people around Jerusalem, they would have known who the high servants, who the high priest's servant was. Anyway, just a funny little thing there. But John identifies him as Peter. Now we often, when we're reading the story, and I'm, I'm always reminding us of this, that we need to stop and take the time to put ourselves in the shoes of the individuals there. It's kind of not a, it's not a pleasant thought, but um, what does it take in a person's soul to draw a sword and swing it? At somebody's head. You know, we talk about this. We have the debate over gun rights and things like that. And self-defense and all that kind of stuff in our society. And one of the things that sometimes a person has to stop and contemplate is like, if I'm looking down the barrel of a gun at somebody, could I really pull the trigger? That's a gross thought. And I'm sorry to bring that to mind. But it does bring us to a point of having to identify with the human condition. Would we really? Could we really? This is how much passion Peter is feeling. Okay, here is an innocent man, a good man, being unjustly arrested. 
He is our king. He's going to be our king. He's been our rabbi. I have just, he just washed my feet a couple of hours ago. And he said, I would deny him. I will not deny him. Watch this. Out comes a sword. What was going on in Peter in that garden that night? I think we can identify with those feelings. I think we can identify with that moment. We can understand why he would do such a thing. Everything has led up to this moment. It's the height of Jesus' popularity. It's been such a controversial week. And Peter is responding in a certain way. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Are you not aware that I could call on my father and he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus rebuking Peter. This is not how this is going to happen. This isn't how this works. Jesus was submitting himself. He was innocent. He had authority. He had the right to call 12 legions of angels. That's a lot. I can't remember how many is a legion. 500? 1,000? 12,000 angels by Roman standards. That sounds like a lot to me. And they could do the job, couldn't they? Jesus told Peter, Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. Put your sword away. Jesus was submitting himself. That had to be very hard for Peter. Not to mention he just tried to assassinate an official, a servant of the high priest. What's going to happen to him now that he just drew the sword? They could have grabbed him, couldn't have they? He could have been put to death for what he just did. Attempted murder. And he's a terrible aim with his sword, right? We keep kind of joking about that, but I don't think he was aiming for the ear. But if he was, then he's a really good shot. Oh man, what a moment that had to be. The emotion, the power, the anger Peter felt. His friend, this is such an injustice that's about to happen to him. Peter had a lot to think about after this. Jesus said to the crowd, he have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would an outlaw? Every day I sat teaching in the temple court and you did not arrest me. But this has all happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. That the word of God would be fulfilled. Jesus was submitted to the word of God, even unto death. Even in the injustice he was experiencing. Boy, that was hard for Peter to handle. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All of their dreams were coming crashing down. Everything they had hoped for, this king that would rise up and rule, take David's place on the throne. They asked at times, uh, where, you know, uh, James and John's mother came to them and came to Jesus and said, can one of my sons sit on your right and one of my, my sons on your left in your kingdom? What are they thinking? They're not thinking in heaven. They're not thinking a spiritual kingdom that he would establish. They're waiting for this earthly kingdom. And these guys would be the guys. 
In fact, Jesus told them, you'll sit on 12 thrones and you'll judge the 12 tribes of Israel. What were they thinking in the natural? That's what they were anticipating. There's a tough moment that Peter had had just previously. You know, it just got... It's just after the story where Jesus calls Peter the rock and saying, upon the rock I will build my church. And we talked about, you know, a little bit about that passage. And it's often controversial in terms of interpretation. But uh, then goes on to say, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes. And that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. They never could quite grasp what Jesus was saying, although they they write about it later as though it was plain. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Here we see Peter again. Jesus is teaching them, I must suffer. I must go and suffer. These people are going to kill me. I'll be raised on the third day. Peter pulls him aside and scolds him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And again, we see the dichotomy between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Jesus. I had to hurt. Get behind me, Satan. Peter just grabbed Jesus, pulled him aside, said, This is never going to happen. Jesus goes, Get behind me, Satan. Youch. And then he goes on. If I can find my spot. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. But I better find it and read it word for word. There you go. Yep, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Why was he rebuking Peter? Peter was trying to override what God wanted to do. It doesn't make sense to him. So he's rebuking Jesus. And Jesus called, get behind me, Satan. Maybe Satan was actually there influencing Peter. Maybe that's what it was about. Maybe there was something else to it. I I don't know. But that's a stern rebuke. And Peter seems to be taking the brunt of that from time to time. Can you identify with that? A stern rebuke from God. An adjustment of perspective and mindset. Seeing things a certain way and God's trying to get through in some other way to make an adjustment for your life to go in a better direction. <laughs> I can hear Peter, you know, he's, he just pulled out the sword. Jesus actually heals the ear of the high priest servant of Malchus. He actually heals that ear. They're arresting him, you guys. They're arresting him in the middle of the night in a garden. That this, it could have broke out in total revolt. Peter draws out the sword. Jesus stops it and heals the guys that are about to arrest him. Can you fathom that? That's who Jesus was. And here Peter is, he has to be remembering some of these things. Before the night's over, you will deny me. Peter, years later, he writes two of the letters in the New Testament. First and second Peter. He has just witnessed an amazing demonstration of the attitude of Christ. And he's writing all these years later to the church after Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. Uh, Really, 2 Peter is uh, presumably towards the end of Peter's life. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he's he's writing on these things. and, and, And 
he's, he witnessed Jesus' example firsthand. And years later, he writes this. And you can imagine from his experience, he's writing out of this. 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to, by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Also the unjust. No one could speak with as much authority about this as Peter. Such an unjust moment. But he goes on to explain. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why? He saw this firsthand. The gracious endurance of Jesus Christ. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Peter began to see the example in the life of Jesus. Jesus was the example. And Peter later recalling and writing, showing us this is the will of God. You've been called to this. Jesus is your example in this so that you might follow in his steps. And then he, and then he explains, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Okay, he was totally innocent. And he was brought under this unjust execution. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn, in return which is totally the opposite of what, how Peter responded in the moment. Peter now could reflect back on the days of Christ and, and recognize his own heir. While Jesus submitted himself, humbled himself, did not revile, even though it was unjust, Peter responded differently. And now he's looking back saying, no, Jesus is the example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So he, Jesus, in submitting himself in that unjust situation, was still submitting himself to the ultimate will of God. Remember, he said, other, this is how the word will be fulfilled. The words of the prophets will be fulfilled through this. He trusted God, even though his circumstances were entirely unjust. He trusted that God would ultimately justify him, and he did. Because Jesus was without sin, he became the king of all kings. And now seated at the right hand of the Father. And makes intercession for you and I day and night. All those things that Jesus is because of what he accomplished on the earth. He did so by submitting himself to a greater will. A greater authority. A greater power. He overlooked the broken circumstances in which he found himself. Peter had the best perspective for teaching us about this. Because he witnessed that. He was right there when it happened. Of course, we, we get on to his denial. The night has gone on. Jesus has been appearing before groups of people judging him, the, the uh, Sanhedrin. 
the Jewish leaders. Now Peter was sitting outside of the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you mean. Everything has just imploded. Jesus has been arrested. I could have been arrested myself. I probably should, I'm going to get myself killed and executed because of what I did in that garden. He's protecting himself. He realizes it's all coming, crashing down around him. What was he feeling? What was he thinking? He obviously felt the need to defend himself and to excuse himself from the situation. I think we all could empathize a little with all of the thoughts rushing through Peter's mind given the whole night that has just happened. Again, I don't want to belabor the point, but let's go back. Washing of the feet, the Last Supper, the praying in the garden, the prediction of the denial. Even if they all fall away, I won't. The pulling out of the sword. So many things that night. And here we are, early morning. Jesus has been arrested. This is all coming to an end. How could it be? And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Having set his sights on doing the right thing and being a a champion for Christ. And he was such a leader amongst those guys. And here he failed too. Here he denied too. And he went and he wept bitterly. Maybe you know what that feels like. To have screwed up so bad. To have had all these ideals and all of this intention and desire to do the right thing and to be godly and to worship God. And and you found yourself in a circumstance that you utterly failed. Do you know what it's like to weep bitterly? Peter does. He did. He went out and he wept bitterly. What an intense night. All of the roller coaster of things that they all must have felt, Peter included. Things that you and I would feel if we were in his shoes. Would our actions be similar to his? How can we draw wisdom from Peter's experiences today in the way we relate to God? Because see, we know the rest of the story. We know that Peter goes on to be forgiven by Jesus. And he goes on to become a pillar in the early church. And we'll, I want to continue looking at Peter's life. We've looked at everything pre-crucifixion and resurrection for Peter. And we all can identify as broken people who make mistakes, who sometimes have denied Christ in different ways and have failed and have wept bitterly or gotten our priorities wrong or whatever it is. But we have the blessing of knowing now that there's still forgiveness coming for Peter. There's a restoration. There's a calling. 
So much so that here we are on a Sunday morning in the year 2021 retelling Peter's story. Would you stand with me, please? So you have a homework assignment. What is it? What makes God laugh? It's in the scripture. Just an interesting side note to keep your attention. I hope you go on this week and are reminded of the humanity of these characters we read about in the Bible. And that this word is designed to speak to you and I, even today, directly. To encourage us, to guide us, to give us wisdom. Lord, I thank you for, I thank you for the church. I thank you for my friends and family here today. Lord, that you adopted us in and made us a part of something powerful that you are doing on the earth. Something that you intend to be effective and powerful. Your people. Though, they, though we were just uneducated fishermen when we've been called. And we make mistakes and, and we've wept bitterly at times. But Lord, you have a greater plan. A greater work. Something beyond even what we can understand. So Father, I pray that you would encourage each soul here today that they matter, that their part matters, that their relationship with you matters, that you care about them, just like you cared about Peter. You care about each one of us. So Father, I pray that there would be encouragement this day in the hearts and minds of your people. We thank you so much for the great work that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.